evening. Welcome. Um, ushers, would you mind coming forward? We're going to take our uh, weekly tithes and offering. Uh, Timberline family who faithfully gives, we're grateful for that. We always say that we mean it. Um, the, the impacts that are had locally and globally are pretty phenomenal, and, and that's kind of an us thing. So we're really, really grateful for your sacrifices. Um, just so you all know, this is our last Wednesday night service until September. So we're going to take the summer off like we always do. Our, our children's programming stops in the summer. Uh, youth programming stops. So if you show up next week, you will, you will be, you'll have opportunity to, like, I guess you could come in here and pray, but, but you will be alone. Well, not alone. God will be here, but probably no one else will be. Um, so if someone comes in late, don't tell them. And they'll show up and they, no, no, tell people, but um, we'll be taking a little bit of a break here, like I said, and then starting back up in, um, in September. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if you have plans or things like that, but, you know, we as a family, we start talking about, like, summer plans, you know, what we're going to do, any trips we're going to take, and especially our kids. Our kids are just, like, so excited about summer being here, school being over. Like, one of our kids down in the room, they have a little board with the days, like a calendar drawn on an inkboard, and every day they get up and they, and they mark out the next day, and they mark out the next day, and they're, like, counting down. And e- even school's better for them toward the end because, you know, I was a teacher for a few years, high school teacher, and toward the end of the year, you're like exhausted. So you're like, who wants to watch a movie? Who wants to go outside and play dodgeball? You know, you're just like, you're kind of going through like lowest common denominator. You know, that's where kids are like, we got to play dodgeball for an hour today. And I'm like, oh, good use of your school time. Or, um, or like a lot of field trips. Um, this, this week, this last week, Monday, um, our, our daughter Brielle went to this field trip that she was looking forward to for, for so long, the, the, the Plains Conservation Center. And she was thrilled about this. This is like, like way east Aurora, like the end of normal civilization. And then it's like 9,000 acres of just open high plains, natural reserve kind of stuff. And there's like buffalo out there. And they've got like... Um, you know, like a, an old um, barn. There's like a chicken coop. I mean, it's, it's like the real deal, authentic, kind of living back in like the mid-1800s. And they spend the whole, they, get, they leave at like 6 in the morning, they're back at 6 at night, and they're just there all day, and they're learning what, what was it like to, to, to live here in our homeland in Colorado in the mid-1800s, what it was like. And they've got a Cheyenne, um, like, a, like a village set up with real teepees, and they make their own food and their butter, and they do all this stuff. And there's an old schoolroom, and they go in there, and they, they have to sit up straight, and how they sit. It's just, it, it's like looking at life, you know, back then. And I went, I wasn't able to go this year, but I went last year when my older son went. And, you know, the kids come back, and they're just like, man, that was awesome. You know, some are going like, I want to live like that. That's how I want to live. And like, all the adults come back like, I am so glad I do not live in the mid-1800s. You know, that's like the lesson to me, is I'm glad I'm, I'm alive in the 21st century here. Because, I mean, it's just, it is hard living. It is not idyllic living at all. And what's so funny to me is, we look at the nation of Israel. You know, we're, we're, we're doing this series on the Old Testament and kind of trying, trying to get our, our minds wrapped around how does the Old Testament fit into kind of our lives as, as New Testament followers of Jesus. And what's funny is this is the opposite view that Israel had. In the Old Testament, contemporary Israel life is, is difficult, hard, rough, desert living it's, it's, it's worse than the East Plains. I mean, it's like, it's very, very difficult living. Water is scarce. 
uh, you know, trees only grow when there's water. Drought is a constant concern. And so in the Israelites' mind, as they thought about kind of, you know, what's idyllic living, what informed them was Genesis. And they looked at it and they said, do you remember back in the day? I mean, of course, I don't, I wasn't around, but our culture story tells us about what we were originally intended for. And that was this picture of a garden. And what's so cool is in the garden, probably the, the one image that, that kind of is, it's kind of a concrete image used in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, that kind of says, this is what life with God was like. Because there are streams, abundant water, it's green, there's growth, there's life. But the one thing that's like stands out and has this kind of prominent role in the story of Genesis is a tree. And it says this tree is planted by these rivers that run right by it. And I remember the kids being out on the plains and they noticed the only time you see like a line of trees, you know there's a little creek going by because that's the only chance a tree has to live out there in the plains. And that's kind of what it's like in this. And so this picture that informs their mind of what we were intended for, the good old days, was this, this garden, this, this life with God. And again, what the, the picture that's used to kind of like stamp that in their minds is it's like this tree and it's planted by these streams of water. It's secure. Its roots go down deep into this life. Genesis 3, 7. The problem is, is that Adam and Eve rebelled. They reached out for a different tree, a tree that brought death, what's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The idea of saying, God's not going to decide what's good and evil, right and wrong. I'm going to decide. I'm going to be the arbiter of truth. And so they reach out. It's this, it's this act of treason, this act of divine cosmic rebellion. And as a result, they're, they're displaced not like a tree which has roots, but they're, they're, they're moved on. They're told that they can't be there anymore. Genesis 3, 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves. They use a tree. Sew fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And after their rebellion, they're cast out. And what we're told is an angel with a flaming sword is placed to the entrance of the garden, and they're told, you can't come back in without going underneath the sword. It's the idea of death. You're not allowed to have this kind of existence anymore. And so there's, there's no possibility of, you know, we often use this phrase, the return to innocence. This idea, um, writers, often with great passion, artists talk about this idea because it's kind of, you know, hardwired in us, we, we long for this idyllic state, this return to innocence. And so we talk a lot about, in our culture about, well, how do we do that? Maybe, maybe we can kind of construct that. Maybe it's through education. Maybe it's through economics. You know, different, different means by which we can kind of get back to this natural state where that, that deep brokenness of the world doesn't seem to be there. But no, instead what we learn is that the ills of humanity aren't like surface scars. The brokenness of humanity goes deep, deep into the core or the center of our being. And so after this sin, the first thing God does is God judges the enemy, Satan, who has attacked God's image bearers. Genesis um, 3.15, we, we have this idea of there, there's this promised seed 
still using this tree image. Listen to these words. Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you. He's referring to the enemy who has brought this rebellion into the human's heart. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, two quick observations about this. The first observation is this idea that humanity, humanity will be bruised by, by the destructive efforts, the ongoing efforts of the enemy. But it's, it's a heel bruise. It's not a mortal bruise. It's, it's at the heel. But it's this idea that every single time that humanity experiences the poison of life, of an illness, of hurt, of betrayal, of brokenness, of hatred, whatever. My, every, every time we experience the poison of that, we're going to be reminded that there's a great cosmic war going on between God and the enemy. And the second observation is that this is the very first time in Scripture, the very first time that there's a promise that God will fix. Theologians call this the, the proto, meaning first, evangelion, you know, evangel, the first gospel. The proto-evangelion. This is the first hint. The first little, it's just kind of slid in there. It's a little obscure. How? We don't know. But it's the first promise that God says, I'm going to use a descendant of Eve to fix what is deeply broken. And it's not a surface scar. It's something deep and at the essence of what's wrong with humanity. I'm going to use a descendant of Eve to actually fix what is wrong. And so it's, it's kind of a promise there will be final triumph. So there's a hope. But no real strategy revealed to humanity at any point yet. Many years pass. Time goes by. Adam, Adam eats his food in sorrow, as has been said, until he returns to the dust from which he came. Many years go on, and they live without the tree of life. And then all of a sudden, we talked about this the other week, God, God selects Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you a seed. That's the start of a new tree. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a seed. And, of course, this is a descendant, a child. And if we know the story. We've talked about this where Abraham's a bit perplexed because he says, I'm going to give it to you, not just you, but I'm going to give it to you through your wife. Um, and this is miraculous, and it has to be miraculous because Sarah, who is a daughter of Eve, is too old. Her body is dried up. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4.19, speaking of Abraham, says this, without weakening in his faith... Abraham, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. How many of you feel sometimes like, my body is as good as dead? <laughs> That's a pretty sad statement. But he figured his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. See, so Sarah's, Sarah's womb was naturally incapable of a seed bearing. So it had to be miraculous. It had to be God's intervention. So Abraham saw that whatever God was up to, whatever he was going about, that he was going to use them, you know, human intervention and human agency and all this stuff, but it was still going to be divine. It, it wasn't merely natural. It was beyond natural. It was supernatural. And so faith would have to be involved. Trust would have to be involved as this original promise works its way out. Time passed. God did miraculously fulfill this promise. He does give Abraham a seed, his son Isaac. And this 
child has another child who has more children, and God fulfills his promise. Abraham's descendants become this great nation, huge nation, Israel. And what's so interesting is about this new nation, God constantly talks about Israel like a plant or like a tree. That's the image he keeps reinforcing to them. I'm going to plant you in this world that is in deep rebellion against me. I'm going to plant you as a tree, calling their mind back to this picture. Listen to the language that Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 11:17. The Lord Almighty who planted you, he's speaking to Israel. In verse 16, the verse right before it, he says, The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form. Israel is seen, Israel's self-image, if, if you could use kind of a literal concrete image for Israel's self-image, is as a tree. Israel understood itself as a tree. Its existence in the world was supposed to remind them, as well as the rest of the world, that, that God's original plan for truth and goodness and beauty was not completely thwarted. It was to remind them that, that somehow there would be a restoration of all things. It's interesting, the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms starts out by, by, by painting a picture of this is what the ideal Israelite looks like. Listen to these words, Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in, and this is what we talked about the other week, that, that covenant law, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. And then here's the image coming back to that person. What's he like? He's like a tree. And look at, look at the language. What kind of a tree? Planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do, there's flourishing, prosperity, health, wholeness. And then the contrast, not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. See, this is the picture of an Israelite who lives faithful to what we talked about last week, God's suzerain vassal treaty covenant. This is a picture of an Israelite who, who is faithful to God's covenant with him. And he's, he's like a tree, just like that first tree, that's planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, its leaf doesn't wither. Meanwhile, those who continue to live lives divorced from God are the opposite of a tree which has roots which go down and can't be moved. They're like chaff that you would throw up, that kind of a seed, and it just gets blown away because there's no grounding. There's nothing there to hold them or station them in any way. And um, remember last week we talked about this idea of, a, or maybe this was a couple weeks ago, maybe it was about two weeks ago, we talked about the idea of, of God giving a, a covenant warning to Israel. He said, if you start living the way of the Canaanites, and, and it was this horrible existence. We looked at, you know, the violence and the debauchery. That, that's what I said. If you choose that, the land vomited them out. It cast them out. It dispersed them. If you live like that, it's going to disperse you as well. The land will vomit you out. Well, time passes again. Israel grows. It actually gets a king. 
In fact, there's three great kings. First it gets Saul, and then David who comes soon after that, and finally Solomon. But this kingdom is short-lived. Soon after Solomon, the kingdom splits, and there's a northern portion of the kingdom, and there's a southern portion of the kingdom. And they're fighting with each other. They're weaker because of this division. And almost in a way that represents the division of the kingdoms, the leaders of both have divided hearts. Which is to say, they're not, they're not solely looking after God. They're not solely saying, I'm going to follow your ways. I'm going to live within this suzerain vassal covenant treaty with you, God. They have divided hearts. And they, I'll worship God when it's convenient, but I'll also worship this God. And I'll also do this. And so they have divided lives. And as a result of that, because of Israel's lack of fidelity, like we talked about last week, God sends his prophets warning Impending doom is coming. And that he's going to almost, almost like reverse the exodus. Remember, the exodus is when Israel's in slavery and he gives them freedom. And he says, I'm going I'm to do like a reverse on that. You're free and I'm going to put you into slavery. You're going to go into exile. And this is what the prophets come and tell them. The first, this nation, Assyria. Horrible, nasty, awful, pagan nation. God said, I'm going to use them. To bring judgment. And so Assyria comes and it takes, the kingdom was divided. Assyria takes the top, the northern kingdom, and takes them away. And they're gone. There's just a few remaining there. A few years later, another nation, Babylon, comes in and they take out the southern portion where the capital is, where the temple is. And their best are taken away as well. And just these few are left there, almost a remnant of seeds of of Israel, but, but they're dispersed. They've been vomited out of the land and they've been taken. God allowed his vineyard to be ransacked, to be run, run through. Uh, it's interesting, some of us will remember, if you've, if you've studied church history, this is the language that uh, Pope Leo X used to talk about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was this reformer. He's this young theologian guy who's, who's trying to reform the church, and he's bothered by some things. And, and uh, Rome gives this, like, official, you know, you're done. You're not a part of the church. You're a heretic. And the language that, that, that's used by the Pope is he, he says in this letter that he sends out to the whole known world that sort of, a, you know, wanted dead or alive, get Luther. <laughs> but the language is God judge, make a judgment, because a wild boar has been set loose in your vineyard. He's borrowing this Old Testament language that God's plan, his dream, is a plant, it's a vineyard. And it's being destroyed. He's drawing this picture of saying, Luther's acting like Assyria, like Babylon. Destroying God's church. He was using it for. But this is language used for God's people here. Um, so Israel now, it's kind of like a tree. Do you guys have, have any trees in your yard? I've got one. I, I'm so bummed because this, I think, I don't know if it was like the late winter we had or something, but I've got an evergreen which has not remained green. And uh, it, it's, it's all dying kind of on the outside of it. So I'm thinking, man, i got to cut this. And it's not small. It's very large. So I'm thinking, i got to cut this thing down. And I know me. I, I know I, I'll be lazy and I won't actually pull up the root. So I'm going to have this like little stump sitting there. So I'm thinking about you know, how I can get this thing out. But th- th- this is like the picture of what Israel is now. Israel was this gorgeous tree with all this life. And it's, it's like they've been cut off. And now they're this kind of eyesore to the world. They're a stump. Almost, I mean, appears dead. 
no life. And yet God made this promise. And so there's all these questions in their mind. God, I thought you said this. How could you be faithful? This is, this is what, what goes through the Hebrews' minds as they're in the rivers in Babylon. Saying, God, how do I sing the songs of Jerusalem by the rivers of Babylon? How do I go on? Because what you promised is not happening. Are you not going to be faithful to that promise? Will you not uphold your end of the deal? And amidst all of this judgment and destruction, there's, once again, remember like in in Genesis where there's this kind of glimmer of hope, the first kind of little, don't worry, I'll fix it kind of thing, but it's going to be bad, but I'll fix it. There's another little glimmer of hope. The prophet Isaiah says these words. This is Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. The stump is nearly dead. That's the picture he's using. And then Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, he says this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is David's father. David's a king. It's his line that will always rule. So this means within a, a king. So a branch is going to grow out, but it's going to be a kingly branch. From the roots of the branch, um, it will bear fruit. And then it, and then it gives us this, this like glowing description of what this branch will be like. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That's what Israel was called to do all along, but they failed. That's what it's describing. It's describing the ideal Israelite. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Promise comes, but they go on languishing. Four hundred long years of languishing. The promise was there, it'll happen. But nothing seems to happen for a long period of time. Historians call this period the 400 silent years. This is the period, if you open up your Bibles and you find the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and you kind of go like this, the 400 silent years is the gap in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we have historical books which tell us what happens during that period of time. But even in those books, there's this idea, it's called the 400 silent years, because God's not speaking through a prophet anymore. We're acting and we're doing things, things are happening, we're trying to follow God. But, but God isn't speaking like he has been. He's always spoken through prophets. There's always been a prophet. There was even before the kings, there was Samuel. We had the judges. God was speaking through them. But it's like God's silent. He's not saying anything. 400 silent years, God was not speaking and not delivering them. And this period of time is marked right from the last prophecy, the book of Malachi, to when the the next prophet showed up. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, says that God is going to return to his people. Somehow his presence is going to come back. The book of Malachi, if you read the first couple of chapters, it's kind of this eerie, creepy, weird, sad, mournful picture God's presence was in the temple, and it's kind of like uh, you see his presence like eking out and kind of stopping and kind of going out further from the temple. 
and going out further. And it's this slow, it's sort of like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. <laughs> you know, this, this slow movement. And, and then he's, his presence is gone. It's not there in the Ark of the Covenant. It's not there in the temple anymore. His presence is gone. But there's this promise in Malachi at the end. The day of the Lord is coming. He's coming back. It doesn't mean in a woo, it's going to be great. He's coming back and there will be judgment. But he's coming back. His presence will be coming back. Malachi 3, 1, um, he says, but, but before that moment comes, before the presence of God comes back in some way, Malachi 3, 1 says that the he says, uh, God says, I will send a messenger before me, and he's going to pre- prepare my way like a herald. He's coming. This is it. The silent years are over. And he says, he will be like the prophet Elijah, he says in Malachi 4, 5. He will be kind of like the pro- prophet Elijah. He will play that same role. And so the Old Testament ends with anticipation but sorrow. Because things are broken and they're so messed up and most of our people are gone and they're in exile and we've kind of rebuilt some things, but it's still very broken. But there's anticipation waiting. And so there's a long, long wait again. Another 400 year wait. Then one day, out of the desert, a man by the name of John comes. And this guy John, he gets the name John the Baptist, his voice is different than any other people. There have been lots of rabbis and scribes and teachers. And, but this guy's voice, it's like reminiscent of the prophets. The way he talks, the, the, the moral authority with which he speaks is completely different. And it's recognized in the ears of the Hebrews because they've, they've been raised on this. They know their scriptures. And it, and, and it smacks of prophetic language. It smacks of God speaking Again, his voice rings like the sound of prophets. And this prophet hears his message, and he uses the language of Malachi, what they were left off with. And listen to this. This is sobering. Remember a tree. Remember what Israel is. Matthew 3.10, John the Baptist says, The axe is already at the root of the trees. Now think about that. There's a stump left. But the axe is at the very root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and will be thrown into the fire. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. That means getting straight, getting right. But the only reason you're getting right is because some, someone else is coming. But after me comes one, and he speaks of him in this glowing language, very similar to Isaiah. One who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff. There's that same picture again with unquenchable fire. The axe is already at the root. Now back in Isaiah chapter 10, God uses axe to speak of Assyria. He says, I wield an axe. And he's speaking of Assyria, meaning he's saying, I'm using this nation to bring final judgment, or severe judgment, not final, on Israel. And he calls them an axe. John is, is using this same language, saying the axe is at the root. What he's saying is another nation is going to come in. But this time it's not going to cut off a pie. It's going after the very root. And if it does that, it will not exist as it has ever. Again, it will be a final 
judgment. And what's so interesting is um, John speaks of himself as preparing the way of the Lord or announcing the one who would come after him who, who is even greater. And this one who is coming is said to be God. Is said to be the Lord. Prepare the way for me is what God said. And this one would, who's coming is going to have divine abilities, like divine prerogatives. He's going to be able to do the thing that uh, we read of in Psalm 1-4. And so we can say, John, John is, even though this is New Testament, you guys, John the Baptist is the last Old Covenant prophet. John is the one who was prophesied who, who would talk about the ending of that covenant. And so we can speak of him in this sense as the last Old Testament prophet. And what's so interesting is Jesus, who John seems to be pointing to, John says, this is the one I'm talking about. Jesus starts telling parables. Jesus comes on the scene. He has this same message as John, repent for the kingdom of God, his rule. It's here. This is what we've been talking about, what we've been looking at. And Jesus starts telling parables. And have you ever noticed how many of Jesus' parables are about vineyards? are about trees, are about olive groves, are about farmers. In fact, he tells one where he says, let me tell you a story. There was a man, a rich man, who lived in a far country, and he, and he built this beautiful vineyard, and he brought in people to take care of it as stewards and managers. And he said, you watch over it, and I'm going to send someone there, a servant of mine, to collect the produce at some point. But he said when he sent the first servant there to collect, the people who were working it, beat him up. He said, get out of here. We're not going to give you anything. Then he sent him another one. Now, Jesus is retelling the Old Testament story. The vineyard is God's people, and beyond that, the world. The, the servants coming are prophets who are saying, get right with God. This is what he's doing. And the religious leaders are the ones who are beating him up and throwing him out. So he says, I, keep, I kept sending a servant, and I sent another servant. And then he said, well, I'll send my son. Surely they wouldn't treat my son that way. And Jesus says, the king's son came, and they said, this is the heir. He owns this. When the king dies, let's kill him, and we'll, we'll get the stuff. And he says, and they killed him. What is Jesus talking about? What is Jesus saying? He's making a comment about all of history, where it's going, where it's been going. He's talking about the religious system and its ability to continue and to go on in any sense. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem toward the end of his life. He weeps over it and he says, I'm weeping because you didn't listen to the final warning. And it may be the most radical, the most scandalous of things that you could imagine him saying, at least for those who heard him, was he pronounces final judgment on the temple. On, upon, now you have to realize the temple is the center of Jewish life. It's the center of, of worship. If you, if you go to Mark chapter 11, this is how he does it, and he does it in dramatic fashion. Mark chapter 11, Jesus is going to the temple. But before, Now, this is, he goes to the temple. Remember, he turns over the tables and kicks people out and he stops sacrifices. He does this for a little bit. Before he gets there, on his way, Mark tells us, he's walking and he passes a fig tree. And he looks at the fig tree and he says, there's no fruit on it. Now, he, we're even told it wasn't even the season for it. So it kind of makes you wonder, wait, what's going on here? But it's to draw attention. It's an oddity, just like parables. And he says, there's no fruit. And so he curses it. 
goes to the temple, gets to the temple, he realizes it's not, doesn't have fruit either. He makes a lot of comments about it. He, he uh, symbolically stops sacrifices, saying, done. Now they went on, but he symbolically does it, knocks it over, says, my father's house should be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. You've completely gone the, other, you know, the wrong direction. Leaves, and as he leaves, Peter notices his, that that fig tree that you cursed, it's already withered, and he says it's withered from the root. The whole thing is dead. Jesus was making a radical statement. He was saying the axe that was at the root is going to swing and the tree would be completely and utterly destroyed. And in AD 70, a few years later, the Roman general Titus comes through after a Jewish revolt and he wipes out Jerusalem. And in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew, not one stone is left on top of another in the temple. And from that moment, he effectively stopped all sacrifice to this day. It's never happened again. Sacrifice has been ended. It's been pushed over. How many of you would say, this is like a bad, depressing movie? Glad I came to church tonight. <laughs> uh, where's the hope? And see, here's, here's my point. This doesn't make any sense so far. How do, how do we make sense of this? Especially, you want to know what's really confusing? Listen to this. Go step out of this time in history. And imagine if you could project yourself to the end of time, forward, okay? The end of all things. The last book in the New Testament is a book called Revelation. Now, it's interesting to know, too, of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 60% of those verses are direct allusions and images of the Old Testament. It's the same story that it's talking about here. And in the book of Revelation, the climax of the book, the very last chapter, the last thing that happens, listen to these words. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me, this is John speaking. Then the angel showed me, look at this language, the river of the water of life, as, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood, and look what it is again, the tree of life. This is the one from Genesis. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit in 12 months, every month. And its leaves of the trees are for the healing of all nations, of all peoples. No longer will there be any curse. Think about that. No longer will there be any curse. You know, remember that thing of the heel being bitten? And every time we experience the poison, the hurt, the brokenness, and it's this reminder of this cosmic battle, it'll be gone. It'll be, it'll be this pristine, you know, this thing we've longed for, the return to innocence that we can't achieve. It'll be what's at the heart of that that we've always been longing for. We'll finally enjoy the, the realization of pristine goodness. The Jewish word is shalom wholeness. Everything is ordered rightly. Everything is working perfectly. There's no friction. In this new creation, there's no social or racial discrimination. Swords will be beaten into plowshares. Peace will reign. The tree is back. The return of the tree. But how? I thought the return of innocence was impossible. I thought that couldn't happen. 
I would suggest it's because the rest of verse 3 that we didn't read. Verse 3 reads, The throne of God and of the Lamb. That's the key. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and its servants will serve Him. The answer is the Lamb. Now, in the context, the Lamb is spoken of as Jesus. This, because this is the linchpin. This is the thing that if you don't have, the wheels fall off. The first tree cannot be connected to that final tree. The tree of life cannot be restored because, see, there's one tree that we've missed. This is the only reason that the whole story makes sense. The, whole, the only reason this whole grand story coheres in any way. See, Adam and Eve reached out their hand to take the fruit from the tree that brought death. And all creation broke. So the first Adam broke it all by reaching out. But, but what, what if there was a second Adam? What if there was a seed of Eve who reached out for another tree, but not to take for himself, but to take others' punishment? See, Jesus was that seed. Jesus was that proto-evangelion. He was that first gospel. He was the dream in that original idea that God had in Genesis 3.15 for how it could be fixed. He's the key. And see, what's interesting is just before Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem and walked into the hands of his captors and lay his life down, listen to the language he used. This is in John 12.23. It says, Jesus replied, Remember how so often Jesus goes, no, the hour's not come. No, it's not right yet. No, it's not right. He goes, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat, that's a seed, falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many, many seeds. And what are those seeds growing to? Trees. The tree of life. Galatians 3.13 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. See, without the death tree... There could have never be the existence of the life tree again. In order to go back to the garden, remember the original garden? What, what was blocking the original garden? Remember these flaming swords, this picture? In order to get into the garden, you had to go underneath the sword. Well, that would cost you your life, and that's the great paradox of getting back with God. You can't on your own because it costs your life. But if God in the person of Christ himself climbed to that second tree, the death tree, went underneath the sword, paid the price, restored the ability for that tree to come back, for us to live in the presence of God, symbolized by this idea of a tree, so that we could become trees. The language that's used in Scripture is that those of us who are not part of the covenant, we're, we're grafted into the body of Christ. This is, again, tree language. And this is what we celebrate every single time when we take communion. See, this, this is why communion is so key to what we do. It's, it's not a mere ritual. 
communion is talking about the fulcrum between the old and the new. Communion is a, is a celebration of the linchpin that holds the old and the new together. It holds the wheels on the car. Without that one act, without it, we, we've got nothing. We have history that goes nowhere except straight into the ground. And what I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask our, our, our ushers to, to distribute the elements of communion. And as you listen to this song, listen, listen to the first words of this song. It speaks of a God whose, whose love is so big, it's almost dangerous. It's, it, it's like hurricane force love. And it says, imagine yourself as a tree in hurricane force love and what that looks like in your life. Hold these elements and then we'll come back together and we'll take them after the song. Jesus made a statement. He said, I, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll have life. You'll be a tree. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. And even when drought comes, when difficulty, when there's like 400 years it feels like of waiting, it doesn't seem like God's promise is coming through. It doesn't seem like this is the life that you expected. You're walking through a season where you would say, man, it's hard to believe there's even a gardener right now. That there are deep roots in your life that go down not to some reserve that you have because of your own strength, but there's a reserve because you're connected to the very source of life. The sap that runs through your, your body is God's Spirit Himself. And that's what we proclaim every time we take this. When we ask the question, how much do you love me? God says this much. And in the person of Christ, he stretches his arms out on the tree. And we proclaim his death. We proclaim that his body was broken on a tree to bring us to the second tree. Let's take the bread. And because no covenant can be made without the shedding of blood, Christ's blood had to be shed for us. And it was making a new covenant because the old one was wrapped up and fulfilled 100% completely by Christ. And he says, here's the new one. And the new one is had by faith, not in what you can do, but in what I've done. And every time you drink this cup, we're proclaiming that it's a reality and that we live in a new covenant. Let's take the cup. Heavenly Father, we are, so, we are so grateful. Father, I pray that as we, as we exit these doors here in a few minutes, as we still staying in community, we're here other times, but not necessarily getting together on our, on our Wednesday nights like this for the next few months. But God, as we walk into circumstances, challenges, difficulties, God, I pray that, that those difficulties... We don't deny them, God, but that the despair in them would be eclipsed by the reality of, oh, how you love us. That we would keep turning back to this new covenant that you have made, that you promised long ago at the very dawn of creation, that you would crush the head of the serpent. And so, God, we live in that reality and in that truth. We're grateful. Thank you that, that you have put your spirit 
inside of us. And so we're never alone. Thank you for the one on our left, the one on our right. We are never alone because we have your people. We have the body of Christ. Thank you for grafting us in to your one and only people. For calling us, though we were not your people, you made us your people. And oh, how you love us, God. Help us to go out and live in that reality that we are so deeply loved by the God of all creation. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our King, our only hope, Jesus. And we all said together, Amen. Amen. Um, Jody, who, who is like our, our supreme cook and, and baker, has made like eight different kinds of pies for us tonight. And that's, that's how much she loves us. It, she, we've got like blueberry pie and banana cream pie and like tons of pies. So uh, if you don't want to eat them, that's fine because I'd like to take some home. But if you'd like to, hang out. Uh, if you've got kids, go pick up your kids. Bring them back. Uh, this is our last time together to be um, together as a community. Um, thank you guys so much just for your faithfulness. Thank you for being committed to grow. and uh, just.